Greetings, my brothers and sisters. Thank you for joining me in this second part of an expositional study of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In this session, we're going to be focusing on verses 12 through 21. Before I read our text, let me give you a brief recap of what we saw last time. We saw that in this letter, Paul is responding to the charges of false teachers who had come to Corinth after Paul's departure, themselves claiming to be apostles of Jesus Christ. They accused Paul of being weak and not being a true apostle. In chapter 4, Paul gladly, gladly accepted the charge of weakness, noting that God intentionally chooses weak vessels to be his agents in order that he may rightly receive the praise that he deserves for their accomplishments. Paul's admission of frailty naturally led him in chapter 5 into a discussion of mortality and the solution for mortality, namely resurrection. The discussion of resurrection then led him to the final topic within verses 1 to 11, the Bema, or judgment seat of Christ. In that discussion, Paul noted that his anticipation of the Bema motivated him in two complementary ways. First, his desire to please Christ drew him forward. Second, his fear of disappointing Christ drove him to be diligent in his work as an evangelist. Paul concluded the first section of the chapter with these words in verse 11, words that reintroduce Paul's defense of himself to the discussion. Knowing, therefore, the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. With that recap as an introduction, listen as I read our text for today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. I'm reading from the New King James Version. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have something to answer those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now today's text is more complex and more theologically challenging than our text from last time. 
In this text, Paul is going to touch on quite a few topics. He responds to the charges of his opponents. He speaks of the atoning death of Christ and the sinfulness of men. He urges the saved to serve God. He declares the wonderful truth of the newness that comes to those who put their trust in Christ. And finally, he speaks of an important and often overlooked aspect of the gospel, reconciliation. Let's work our way through this text. Paul's defense of himself begins in verse 12 and runs through the beginning of verse 14. Let's start with verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have something to answer those who boast in appearance and not in heart. The key word here is commend. Paul is addressing the issue of credentials. The false apostles who had come to Corinth brought with them written documents, allegedly proving that they were apostles of Christ. Earlier in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul had asked this question, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Allow me to paraphrase Paul's argument here. These false apostles, these interlopers who have infiltrated your church, love to boast of their credentials and their accomplishments, and they love to belittle me. But you know who I am. You know that I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is you who should be defending me. Now here in chapter 5, Paul refuses to enter into a battle of credentials with his opponents. But later, starting in chapter 11, he will reluctantly give in and list the proofs of his apostleship. He will speak of the persecutions and imprisonments that he had suffered, of the physical hardships that he had endured, of his God-given vision of paradise, of his thorn in the flesh, of the miraculous signs of an apostle that he had performed among the Corinthians, and of the sacrificial love that he had demonstrated to the Corinthians. But here in chapter 5, he simply reminds the Corinthians that he should have no need to defend himself before them. Instead, they should be defending him before the false apostles. Well, Paul responds to a second charge of the false apostles in verses 13 and 14, the charge that he was out of his mind. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us. Paul is saying, I know that the false apostles are accusing me of being insane, but I am quite sane. It is my love for God and my love for you that sometimes compel me to do things that may appear crazy to others. I'm not sure what seemingly crazy things Paul had in mind. Perhaps he was thinking of the fact that he mentions in chapter 11, verse 8, when he says, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. No doubt the false apostles ridiculed Paul's willingness to work to support himself, to serve for free, even as they demanded financial support from the Corinthians. Don't miss the fact that when Paul says, for the love of God compels us, 
He's probably taking a jab at the false apostles. It is as if he is saying, they serve for the love of money, but I serve out of the love of God. As we move into the second part of verse 14, Paul turns his focus back to the truths of the gospel that motivate him to preach despite the cost, despite the physical hardships, the burden of worry, the slanders of his opponents, and the beatings and imprisonments that he suffered at the hands of government officials. Listen again to verse 14 and pay attention to the word because. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. It is the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel that compels Paul to carry on in spite of obstacles and opposition. Here in verse 14, we enter into our first theological challenge in today's text. What does Paul mean when he says, if one died for all, then all died? We can start by acknowledging that Paul is giving us a statement of fact, not of mere possibility. In other words, the force of his words is, since one died for all, then all died. But what exactly does this statement mean? There are at least three possibilities. Possibility number one, Paul is declaring the doctrine of limited atonement. Limited atonement is the idea that when Christ died on the cross, he was bearing only the sins of those who would actually believe the gospel. According to this view, the all in the phrase, then all died, refers only to the elect, and the statement, one died for all, means that Christ died only for the elect. He only bore their sins on the cross. Well, this does seem like a strange use of the word all, but some theologians have taken the verse this way for reasons that will become clear when we look at the second option. Option number two, Paul is declaring the doctrine of universalism. That is the idea that everyone will eventually be saved because of what Christ did on the cross. The statements, one died for all and then all died, mean that Christ has paid the sin debt of every human being, and therefore every human being is viewed by God the Father as having died in Christ. Therefore, whether he hears and believes the gospel or not, every human being will eventually be saved. Possibility number three, Paul is declaring two doctrines, the doctrine of universal depravity and the doctrine of unlimited atonement. The statement that all died is not a reference to death in Christ, but rather to death in Adam. In other words, all people are sinners because they are descendants of Adam. This is the idea of universal depravity. Universal depravity states that all people are sinners who deserve eternal condemnation and all need God's forgiveness. When Paul says one died for all, he is declaring that Christ really did bear the sins of all people on the cross, even the sins of people who never will be saved. Paul's point is that it was necessary for Christ to bear the sins of all mankind so that salvation could be offered to everyone. 
Well, which of these views is correct? Obviously, the second view is wrong. There is no way to reconcile the idea of universal salvation with the rest of Scripture. So we can dispense with that option. But how do we choose between options 1 and 3? The answer is found in verse 15. Listen again to verses 14 and 15 together. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Personally, I believe that Paul's point could not be clearer. When Paul says he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, he's making two things abundantly clear. First, Christ bore the sins of all people without exception on the cross. Second, only those who hear and believe the gospel will receive the benefit of his sacrifice for their sins. As I see it, Paul clearly refutes both the idea of limited atonement and the idea of universal salvation in these verses. However, what Paul has declared raises a new theological problem. Perhaps you noticed it yourself. If, as Paul has claimed, Christ paid for the sins of all people, why are all people not saved? Maybe you can see now why some people favor option one, that is limited atonement, and a few favor option number two, universal salvation. Paul will provide a solution to this problem later in the chapter, so hold that thought for now. Let's move on to verses 16 and 17. These verses are not theologically difficult, but the logic can be difficult to follow if we're not careful. Let's work through these verses with care. First of all, I want you to notice how both verse 16 and 17 begin with the word, therefore. The first therefore connects verse 15 with verse 16. So listen once more to the last part of verse 15 and the first part of verse 16. Those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. The phrase, those who live, in verse 15, clearly means believers. That, in turn, indicates that the phrase, no one, in verse 16, means no believer. And context suggests that the phrase, according to the flesh, is a reference to the false apostles and their fascination with earthly credentials. As I understand it, this is the point of what Paul is saying in verse 16. He's saying something like this. Now I know, now that I know Christ, I no longer view people through the lens of earthly accomplishments or credentials. I see them in an entirely different light. In verse 17, Paul tells us what that new light is. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Imagine what that truth must have meant to Paul. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Perhaps Paul was thinking, Yes, even someone like me. I was once a blasphemer. 
I cast my vote for Jesus to be crucified. I persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. But what I used to be has passed away. I am a new creation because I am in Christ. The implications of verses 14 to 17 are profound. Anyone who is in Christ leaves behind what he was and becomes a new creation. And anyone can become in Christ. Anyone. A liar, a gossip, an adulterer, a thief, or even a murderer. A person like me or a person like you. Because of Christ, anyone can leave behind what he was and become a new creation. All it takes is hearing and believing the gospel. That is indeed good news. We could dwell on verse 17 for a long time, but we need to move on to the final and perhaps the most profound section of our text, verses 18 to 21. In these verses, Paul solves the problem that he raised in verses 14 and 15, the problem of why only some people are saved despite the fact that Christ died for the sins of all people, that he bore the sins of all people on the cross. In this paragraph, we will run into an interpretive difficulty that appears a number of times within the letters to the Corinthians. Now, this difficulty has to do with punctuation. You see, biblical Greek had no punctuation, and in particular, it had no quotation marks. This sometimes makes interpreting Paul's words difficult. Let me give you an example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, Paul addresses the matter of sexual immorality. Within these verses, he makes a number of statements that are at the very least surprising. In verse 12, he makes this statement, All things are lawful for me. Is this really a true statement? Remember, the context is a discussion of sex. Could it really be that Paul is saying that all things are lawful for me as a Christian with regard to sex? How about prostitution? How about pornography? How about adultery? I don't think that Paul is declaring these things to be lawful for us. In verse 13, we have another troublesome statement. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. That seems a little bit less troublesome until we read a bit further and we discover that Paul still isn't talking about food. He's talking about sex. I believe that he's using the stomach and food as euphemisms for the sake of decorum. How about verse 18? Every sin that a man commits is outside the body. What? That is a ridiculous statement, especially when the topic is sex. Sex is definitely a bodily sin. At least, sexual immorality, excuse me. How are we to handle such statements? The answer is that in each of these cases, Paul is not making a theological statement of truth. Instead, he's quoting a slogan of the Corinthians, something that they were fond of saying, and then showing why that slogan is false. If ancient Greek had had quotation marks, understanding these passages would be much easier. 
Since it didn't have quotation marks, Bible translators have to guess whether and where to insert them. Why do I bring this up? It's because of verse 20 here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a verse that can be difficult to translate. With that warning in mind, listen as I read verses 18 to 20 to you as they are translated in the New King James Version. As I read them, I want you to listen for the words reconcile and reconciliation. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Did you notice how many times the words reconcile and reconciliation appear in these verses? Five times within three verses. Reconciliation is at the heart of these verses, and as we will see, reconciliation is the solution to the problem that was raised in verses 14 and 15. Let's work through these verses a bit at a time. Verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. When Paul says that God has reconciled us to himself, the us includes him and the Corinthians. He's using the word reconcile almost as a synonym for the word saved. Here Paul is defining his evangelistic ministry as a ministry of reconciliation. His job as an evangelist is to reconcile God and man. The gospel, when an individual hears it and believes it, ends the alienation between God and that individual that's caused by unforgiven sin. So far, things seem to be quite straightforward. But when we come to verse 19, things become difficult. Paul continues, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Hold on. If reconciliation ends the alienation between God and men, Paul seems to be declaring here that everyone in the world is saved. Listen again. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Now, just to be clear, the word for world here is the same word cosmos that Jesus uses in John 3.16. In both of these passages, the phrase the world means all people without exception. If Paul had stopped here, it would seem that he was indeed teaching universalism, that is, that everyone will be saved. But Paul doesn't stop here. He continues on into verse 20. This is where the matter of quotation marks becomes crucial. I'm going to quote this verse to you from four different translations. And as I read them, I want you to ask yourself this. Is Paul making an appeal to the Corinthians? To be reconciled to God? 
First, the 1984 NIV. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Next, the 1977 New American Standard. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Next, the Net Bible, second edition. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his plea through us. We plead with you on Christ's behalf, and then this last phrase is in quotation marks, be reconciled to God. Finally, the New King James Version. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now please listen to what I have to say next carefully. Of all these translations, only one, the Net Bible, adds any quotation marks. It adds them around the final command, be reconciled to God. I believe that they are correct in doing so. However, all of these translations supply a word that is not in the original Greek, and by supplying that word, they really muddy the waters. That little added word is the word you in the phrase, we beg you on Christ's behalf. When you hear that word you there, it seems to say that Paul is speaking to the Corinthians and making the appeal to them. But the fact is, there is no such word you in the original Greek. And of these four translations, it's only the New King James Version that has the honesty to put that little word you in italics, alerting us to the fact that it isn't present in the original Greek. Now, I hope that I haven't lost you yet. There's a reason why I'm taking you through these details. The reason is that if we conclude that Paul's appeal here, be reconciled to God, is aimed at the Corinthians, we're going to miss the point entirely. Paul isn't asking the Corinthians to be reconciled to God. They're saved already. Paul is not begging the Corinthians to be saved. Paul is explaining the nature of his ministry. He's explaining what he does whenever he preaches the gospel. Let me offer you a paraphrase of verse 20. Paul says something like this. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were pleading through us. Period. We implore people on Christ's behalf when we declare the gospel, declaring this message to them, be reconciled to God. Do you see what's going on here? Paul is not begging the Corinthians to be reconciled to God. He's explaining that the very nature of evangelism is a call to the unsaved to be reconciled to God. If the original Greek had had quotation marks, that would have been very clear from the start. But that's not the end of our problems. If, as Paul has said in verse 19, God has reconciled the world to himself, why is it still necessary for each individual to be reconciled to God? After all, every individual is part of the world, and Paul says that God has reconciled the world to himself. The answer to this question is that reconciliation 
cannot be completed without a response from both sides. Allow me to illustrate. The best illustration that I can offer to you comes from marriage. My wife and I have been married for over 35 years. We have a good marriage, but like all married couples, from time to time we fight. Some of our fights are just little spats. We get over them and we make up quickly. But once in a while we have a serious fight. When that happens, we stop talking to each other. We eat our meals in silence. And when we go to bed, each one of us rolls as far as we can to the opposite side of the bed so that we won't be close to each other. When that happens, we need reconciliation. Now I want you to look at my hands. Imagine that this is my wife and this is me. This is the way we look normally. We're happy together, we're facing each other, we're interacting with each other, we're in good fellowship. But then we have a fight and we turn our backs to each other. How long that's gonna last depends on how big the fight is. Eventually, one of us is going to crack and let's assume for the purpose of this illustration, it's my wife. So she turns back to me and says, honey, I'm sorry, let's kiss and make up. But I'm still angry, I'm over here saying, nope, I'm still angry, I'm not talking to you, go away. Well, more time passes and eventually I crack and I turn and I say, okay, I'm sorry, let's kiss and make up, let's be reconciled. Now we're back in fellowship. Do you see the point of my illustration? Here it is. Reconciliation can't be completed until both of the alienated parties willingly respond. Let me say that again. Reconciliation can't be completed until both of the alienated parties willingly respond. Can you see how this clears up the problem in today's texts? Sin causes alienation between God and mankind. Therefore, every human being is alienated from God. We enter the world as sinners, as spiritually dead people. We are alienated from God from the very beginning. But God has taken steps to solve our problem of alienation. By the way, our sin alienated him from us too. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the cross so that he would bear the sins of each and every person, every sin, past, present, and future. That's what Paul is referring to in verse 19 when he says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them. In other words, if Christ had never gone to the cross, both we and God would be facing apart. But because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, God has turned his face to us as a race. Not just to some of us, but to all of us. That's what Paul means in verse 15 when he says that Christ died for all. God stands facing each and every individual in the entire human race with his arms open wide saying, Come to me. Forgiveness is available to you because Christ has borne your sins. I want you to become my child. If you put your trust in Christ, 
you will not perish, but instead have eternal life. And yet every one of us at the beginning is standing with our back to God. Do you understand the gospel message now? Paul summarizes the entire gospel in one phrase, be reconciled to God. This is why unlimited atonement doesn't result in universal salvation. You see, reconciliation is the key. Salvation is a gift from God, but he never forces it on anyone. Instead, he offers the gift and invites us to receive it. The relationship between God and each individual cannot be restored until that individual says, Yes, God, I want to be reconciled to you. Do you see now why the concept of reconciliation is so important to the gospel? Can you see why we must preach the gospel? The gospel is a gift. The call to salvation is an invitation. Every individual who hears that invitation and accepts the gift will be saved. When that happens, God and the individual are truly and fully reconciled. However, I'm sorry to say that we still have one more problem. Maybe you noticed it. In verse 19, Paul says, God has reconciled the world to himself. By symmetry, we would expect Paul's gospel declaration to be, reconcile God to yourself. But that's not what he says. Instead, he declares this very odd, passive command. Be reconciled to God. Did you ever notice how strange that is? What kind of command is that? Imagine for the moment that you are a single, lonely man. You tell your friend of your predicament. He scratches his head, thinks for a moment, and then says, I know how to solve your problem. It's easy. Be loved by a lovely woman. That would be absurd. Such a passive command is nonsense. But that's exactly how Paul describes the message of the gospel. Be reconciled to God. Is this passive command also nonsense? No, it's not nonsense. The reason why it's not nonsense has to do with the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man. The Bible says that without the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, no one would believe the gospel. But it also says that the individual must choose to believe the gospel in order to be saved. Both of these things are true. I believe that the passive command, be reconciled to God, emphasizes that in the end, we will all recognize that salvation is truly a gift from God and that if he had not taken the initiative, it never would have happened. He deserves all the credit, even though it's our job to proclaim the gospel and it is the job of each individual who hears the gospel to respond to it by saying, yes, I want to be reconciled. Well, we have just one more verse to examine, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
The basic message of this verse is clear. Christ died on our behalf so that we could be saved. However, this verse does have two significant difficulties. Fortunately, it's not difficult to clear them up. The first difficulty appears in the first part of the verse. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Here's the problem. How could Christ be made to become sin? There seems to be some kind of a category error here. Sin is either an action or a principle. A person cannot become an action or a principle. Now, some people have suggested that Paul meant to say that Christ became sinful for us when he bore our sins on the cross. That doesn't solve the problem. First, Paul could have said that if that was what he meant. And second, even though Christ bore our sins on the cross, he didn't become sinful on the cross. He remained the sinless, perfect sacrifice. I believe that the correct solution involves what is called a Hebraism. A Hebraism is a situation where a person who isn't speaking Hebrew speaks as if he is speaking Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word chata can mean either sin or sin offering. I think Paul is using a Hebraism here. In effect, he is saying, for he made him who knew no sin to be a sin offering for us. That makes perfect sense. Now, the second difficulty appears in the second half of the verse where Paul says that Christ gave himself as a sacrifice for us so that, quote, we might become the righteousness of God in him. The problem here is similar to the earlier one. Righteousness is a quality, not a thing. A person cannot become righteousness. However, a person can become righteous in his behavior. Perhaps what Paul has in mind is that ultimately when we reach our destiny as resurrected saints, we will demonstrate God's own righteousness visibly in our behavior. Are you tired? I confess that I am a bit. It's taken a lot of work to clarify the meaning of our passage, but I hope that it's been worth the effort. Let me gather a few final thoughts that come out of this very challenging but also very rich passage. Thought number one. A major motivation for evangelism is love for Christ. Note again what Paul says in verse 14 regarding why he continues his ministry despite the difficulties. The love of Christ compels us. Now, compassion for the lost is certainly not a wrong motivation for sharing the gospel, but an equally important and perhaps more important motivation should be our love for Christ. The more we appreciate what he has done for us, the more we will want to tell others about how wonderful he is and how wonderful what he has done for mankind is. Thought number two, we can take a cue from Paul regarding how we should view other believers. It's easy to allow worldly values to cloud our view of other believers. The world judges people by such matters as physical appearance, wealth, 
talent, accomplishments, and personal history, whether these are good or bad. But we who are believers should be careful not to allow such matters to dominate our attitude toward other believers. Let's remember that as Paul reminds us, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Thought number three. The gospel message itself is simple, but God's solution to man's sin problem is complex. Understanding how God saves the unjust without himself being unjust is not easy. Questions on the extent of human depravity, exactly how Christ's cross pays for human sin, and why God only saves some people are difficult to answer. Personally, I'm fully convinced by this passage and many others that Christ's atonement was unlimited, that he bore the sins of all people on the cross. Paul's discussion of reconciliation solves, at least in my thinking, the question of why unlimited atonement does not lead to universal salvation. But some people disagree. Some Christians believe that this particular theological problem is better solved by concluding that Christ's atoning work was limited only to the elect. That debate is likely to continue. In any case, let us all be firmly committed to the fact that salvation is available to whomever hears and believes the good news of Jesus Christ. Finally, let's pray that God will give each one of us more opportunities to share the good news. Let's pray that he will enable us to remember that our duty is to be what Paul describes himself to be in verse 20, an ambassador for Christ. As good ambassadors, it is our duty to be humble, to focus on the task for which we are sent, and never to deviate from the message that has been entrusted to us. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this passage, which is rich and deep and challenging. Thank you for sending your son to the cross. Thank you for what he accomplished. And thank you that because of what he did, it is possible for us to be reconciled to you. For those of us who have already believed the gospel, we are reconciled. We are your children. You have given us the gift of eternal life, and we will never be alienated from you again. Do, Father, give us opportunities to share this good news with others. Help us to give the message clearly. Let us be good ambassadors, serving humbly, speaking clearly, and doing so both for your glory and for the good of those to whom we speak. We pray this through Christ. Amen.